Welcome to the Future of Protein Production Podcast. In this series, we will explore the technological advancements that are shaping alternative proteins. From cultured meats to plant-based proteins, we will talk to experts and innovators who are working towards a more sustainable, efficient, and kind protein production system. Join us as we dive into the exciting possibilities and challenges of the alternative protein production industry in the years to come. Good afternoon, good morning, and even good evening. A massive thank you to all of you for joining us here today at the Future of Protein Production. My name is Nick Bradley, and I will be your host for the next hour or so. Just a quick rundown of who we are. We are an information platform that connects companies in the alternative proteins value chain. We do this via daily news, weekly emailers, monthly webinars, podcasts, and our quarterly magazine, Protein Production Technology International. We also organize virtual and in-person events. And on that note, we hope to be able to meet many of you face-to-face on the 11th and 12th of October, when we hold our Future of Protein Production Live conference and exhibition at Rye Amsterdam in the Netherlands. It would be great to see all of you there later in the year. Now on to today, the topic being bioreactors, specifically building blocks of a future system, advancing bioreactor design and reducing costs. We have a great panel for you today, a diverse set of speakers, each bringing some fantastic knowledge to the table. We have the founder of a company whose mission is to supply the cultivated meat industry with industrial scale bioreactors. We have another founder whose company is building next-gen cell culture manufacturing systems to make the development and manufacture of living cell-based products faster and more efficient. We also have the head of new food from one of the world's largest suppliers to the food industry, which has been developing and building a full range of bioreactors and fermenters for more than 20 years. And finally, we have another founder from a recently formed biotechnology B2B startup in the University of Cambridge. So same goals coming at the challenges in a variety of ways. Cultivated meat and fermentation-derived proteins are revolutionizing the way we think about food production. They offer a solution to the increasing demand for protein while addressing environmental concerns and animal welfare. To harness the full potential of these technologies, though, it is crucial to enhance bioreactor designs. Scalability, sterility, oxygen and mass transfer, nutrient delivery, monitoring and control, flexibility, energy efficiency, automation, data analytics, and sustainability are all critical considerations. The emerging fields of cultivated meat and microbial, whole biomass, and precision fermentation hold tremendous potential for sustainable and efficient protein production, and optimizing bioreactor designs plays a vital role in achieving that. These innovative food technologies hold immense promises, but their widespread adoption is hindered by limited bioreactor capacity. Quite simply, there isn't enough bioreactor capacity to supply even 0.01% of global meat demand. Now, that limited capacity poses significant challenges in terms of scale and cost, market availability, and R&D progression. Small-scale production limits cost-effectiveness and inhibits the ability to compete with traditional products. The widespread availability of these uh, innovative foods Uh, Sorry, the widespread availability of these innovative foods is hindered due to production limitations, preventing consumers from accessing sustainable options. Restricted bioreactor capacity, meanwhile, slows down research and development efforts to improve quality, taste and production efficiency. That said, there are various technological advances to overcome these capacity constraints. Developing larger bioreactors with advanced automation and monitoring capabilities can increase production capacity and efficiency. Enhancing cell culture and fermentation techniques through improved media formulations, bioreactor designs, and process optimization can boost yields and reduce production costs. And creating modular bioreactor systems that can be easily adapted and expanded 
will enable faster scaling and decentralized production. So by harnessing technological advancements, establishing supportive regulatory frameworks and fostering public awareness, we can overcome some of these challenges and unleash the full potential of these revolutionary food production methods. Before we begin, I want to let you know that you can submit questions via the Q&A box under the Engage button on the right-hand side of your screen. There will be a bit of time at the end for participants to answer your questions, and I will do my best to get through as many of them as possible. So time now to welcome our panelists for today. And hopefully they should pop up on the screen there. Um, as I come to each of you individually, I just wanted to get an overview of why you think we need alternative proteins as part of a sustainable global food system. So firstly, Jack, I'm going to come to, come to you as you appear on my screen. Jack, um, quick introduction um, about you and your company. Uh, and why do you think we need alternative proteins as part of a sustainable global food system? Yeah, cheers. Thanks, Nick. Um, hello, everyone. Great to be here today. Uh, very quick introduction. I'm Jack, co-founder of a company called Unicorn Biotechnologies. We are a UK-based uh, B2B developer of next-gen bioreactors and living cell manufacturing systems. Uh, the reason we exist is pretty much all the reasons Nick outlined. There are a whole host of innovations uh, that have been proven in the lab and that are now needing to get to mass manufacture. But the problem is not only do we not have enough capacity in bioreactors, we don't have the right bioreactors. More on this to come. Uh, and as for the why, why are we here? Why do we need alternative proteins? In a sentence, it's about decarbonization and leaving the world in a better place than we found it. 10,000 years ago, we invented agriculture. About 100 years ago, we industrialized that process. Today, parts of the world are able to enjoy abundance of food. Parts of the world are still in food insecurity. Our current production methods are unsustainable and play a leading part to GHG emissions and, frankly, the warming of our planet. We need to harness technology to come up with better ways to make our protein and our food systems to create a more sustainable and fairer world. Brilliant. And Yash, would you like to go next? You remember the question? <laughs> uh, yeah, so um, I am uh, Yash Mishra. I am a co-founder of Animal Alternative Technologies. We are a B2B startup based in the University of Cambridge, creating an end-to-end -end scalable cultured meat manufacturing system to empower food producers all over the world to make their own cultured meats tailored to local tastes and desired specifications. Our system includes all the essential raw materials like the cell lines, as well as hardware such as bioreactors and the intangibles like software and bioprocessors that are often forgotten. Uh, the reason we exist, um, say, same as many of the other companies here, is because um, you know animal farming is a leading cause of global warming, deforestation, antibiotic resistance, and infectious diseases. And uh, so we exist to... Um, and then culturally can be a safe and sustainable alternative to all these, but we still don't have a sustainable, uh, scalable, commercially feasible production system, uh, which is what our company is, is working on. And and so, yeah, we are, we are working and developing novel bioreactors uh, uh, in order to address global food security and sustainability challenges. Brilliant. And uh, Arpad? Yes, hi. Thank you, Nick. Uh, glad to be here. My name is Arfa Choi. I'm leading Gaia's alternative protein business in North America. To those of you who don't know, Gaia is a leading supplier of process engineering solutions, equipment, and technology 
to the food, beverage, nutrition, and biopharma, uh, yeah, biopharma industries. We have about 18,300 people globally, and uh, we have opened our new food business unit, which is centered around cultivated meat and precision and biomass fermentation. Brilliant. Uh, I've learned something over yeah. there. And to your question, no, why not? Well, why alternative proteins uh, are important and, and why we have uh, made it a strategic uh, part of our company. To focus on it is obviously the two metrics that the guys, Jack and Yash, mentioned. Right, One is the growing population. We all know the numbers from the UN report, right? Uh, 10 billion people by 2050. So to feed future generations is one aspect. I think uh, we all know that the current food production methods are not scalable and sustainable to those levels. And we need something to supplement this. And then the other one is obviously the sustainability angle, which is land use, uh, you know, the biodiversity, overfishing, uh, greenhouse gas emissions, and uh, cultivated meat uh, especially can improve uh, all those metrics. Mm -hmm. And I was just about to say, I've learned something uh, new today already. I thought it was uh, GEA, but it's uh, GEA. So uh, <laughs> I've learned something. Yossi, um, you're last, uh, last to introduce yourself and answer that uh, question about alternative proteins and why we need them in a sustainable food system. Hi, Yossi Quint, founder and CEO of Arc Biotech. And we are developing bioreactors and operating systems that are capable of scaling to commodity scale to, to feed uh, what we believe will be the growing demand for cultivated meat. As everyone said, um, meat is delicious, but destructive. Uh, we kill over a trillion animals and fish each year. We devote 40% of all arable land to animal agriculture. Um, we're driving up antibiotic resistance. Uh, so there's a lot of issues, but it tastes really good um, and people love it. And so cultivated meat, is a way that people can um, get their meat and um, not have to compromise on taste or texture or nutrition. And yeah, thank you for having me. Right, you're very, very welcome. Um, so this is going to seem like a, a very basic question, but we mustn't assume that everyone's an expert. So Yash, but what is a bioreactor and what makes them so important? Thank you. So. Um... Traditionally, when we think of a bioreactor, we think of a vessel of some sort where you have liquid inside it and it has a little stirrer and it's creating conditions that um, facilitate uh, biological activity or, or the growth of cells. And then uh, that's what we thought of traditionally, but our industry is now pushing uh, the limits and, and what we envision a bioreactor to be far beyond that. And then luckily, uh, if you look at a place like Wikipedia, you'll see that the definition of bioreactor is basically any manufactured device or system that supports a biologically active environment. So the bioreactor, in the case of uh, you know alternative proteins, is where uh, pretty much where all the action happens. It creates it's it's a container that where the cells grow and live, and it creates the optimal environment for for these cells to to survive and thrive. And so um, you know you can control different conditions like the pH and the temperature and give these cells all the nutrients that they need to grow and become what you want them to become. Um, it, with bioreactors, you can go from a tiny vial of cells to uh, you know millions upon millions of kilograms of food. So it is one of the most uh, crucial pieces of the puzzle when it comes to you know coming, making cultured meat and, and commercializing it. And, and so it's, it's an incredibly important piece of hardware where pretty much all the action happens. And, and 
um, what what it traditionally um, represents is, is changing every day and evolving quite quickly. And now, in the past week, we've seen two huge uh, announcements in America. We've uh, we've seen um, Upside Foods and we've seen Good Meat um, clear that third and final hurdle from the USDA, um, meaning their products can now uh, be sold to U.S. consumers. Um, but it's all about capacity. Um, and I think even with their scales, they're not really looking at the consumer market yet. They're just looking at food service. So um, where is the industry overall right now when it comes to, to bioreactors? We're going to move now on sort of capacity challenges. Um, Jack, do you want to come in there? Sure. So I, in terms of the industry as a whole, um, in the cultivated meat space, we are still very much in the early days. Um, you know, Yash mentioned that bioreactors come in all shapes and sizes from, you know, small vessels, about yay big, that you might find on a lab bench to, uh, you know, kind of the, the kit that GIA, not GEA, makes, which can be the size of small houses. Uh, so all shapes and sizes. Uh, most firms, and most players in the space are in small scale production. So somewhere between that tiny vial and, you know, industrial scale. And right now, the name of the game is really proving out all the processes. Uh, maybe to be a bit contentious here, uh, I'll throw throw a, throw a monkey wrench into the machine. I'd actually argue that uh, it's not purely a capacity problem in terms of we have the design for the hardware and we just need to build, copy and paste and build more of them. Right now, we also have science problem, not just an engineering challenge. It's getting cultivated meat to grow depends on finding the right biology, so getting the right cells from the right animal, finding the right machine that works with that biology, and then combining them together to make an economically viable process, which is, that is what a bioprocess is. It's putting a cell in a machine and making sure it grows the way you want it to. That's actually uh, kind of at a more foundational level, a big challenge across the entire industry. How can we make, get the right cells for the right machines and then look to scale? Mm -hmm. I mean, of course, um, cultivated meat and fermentation derived proteins, they're not just competing against each other. They're competing about, you know, vying with many different industries, pharma, for instance. Um, uh, Arpad, perhaps, um, I mean, considering from uh, Jack's um, comment there, I mean, is it purely an engineering challenge, a biology challenge or a bit of both in your opinion? What are the current challenges um, overall in scaling up capacity? I, I think it's it's a bit of both. Um, there there are many challenges we are facing. I mean, Jack, uh, I think gave a very nice overview of what we are looking at. Uh, one thing is obviously the sheer sensitivity of cells, right? Um, so solving that at scale. Then there's contamination issues. So a lot of the customers we are working with who have uh, perhaps pilot scale setups, they're uh, battling with contamination. So it's the right system design to the right hygienic levels. Um, water usage, uh, we don't talk about uh, much of this yet, right, in the industry, but on the downstream processing side, on the filtration and harvesting and all this, there will be, there are challenges with water usage. And uh, this is actually something we are working on, trying to overcome and designing uh, innovative solutions to it. Um, and then there's, all, of course, also the cost of media. Right, so uh, serum-free media. This will be a big, big impact on, on enabling you know, commercial scale uh, production. Yossi, do you want to come in on that? 
Uh, yeah. So I'll, I'll first just, um, add a comment about the capacity constraint. Uh, so just to put some numbers around it, just to be data driven, there's about 15 million liters of bioreactor capacity globally. Um, 99.9% .9 of that is for the pharmaceutical industry. And even if all that 15 million liters of capacity went from the farm industry to cultivated meat, um, which it, it won't, but if it did, that still wouldn't be enough to feed the U.S. for half a day. And so we're really talking about a drop in the bucket um, and a need to not 10x or 100x capacity, but 1,000x or 10,000x capacity. Regarding where the industry is today, I actually believe that these companies have incredible science and have made incredible progress. Uh, there's certainly significant progress to go, and there is always more opportunity. Um, but they're, at least the leading companies are starting to shift from, is this possible? To how can we do this more cheaply and in a more scalable way? Um, which is still somewhat of a scientific problem, but it is also a procurement problem, an economies of scale problem, um, streamlining operations, and buying much cheaper, larger bioreactors. Just the bigger bioreactors are cheaper because there's so many fixed costs. And so when you scale up, um, you're able to just save it all on a per liter basis. I do believe that better bioreactors are critical to that and that it's not just copying and pasting what we have today. A 250,000 liter bioreactor in theory should be about 90% cheaper than a 25,000 liter bioreactor. And the biggest bioreactor today in the world is 25,000 liters. And the biggest, I'll, I'll just add one more data point. Uh, the biggest pharma facility in the world is about 150,000 liters. Um, at Samsung Biologics in South Korea, uh, they actually have a number of different facilities. So even if you were to add all their facilities, um, all their facilities, if you were to run them for an entire year, they would produce less meat than the average U.S. Tyson plant produces in one day. And so what you're talking about is the biggest farm facility running 24-7, 365 days a year, is still going to be producing less than what a, a typical single meat plant is going to do today. And so we're just talking about a radical, radical gap in capacity that like just will not be solved with, with today's infrastructure and really requires a radical rethinking. Mm -hmm. Yes. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I don't have really a lot more to, to add to, to this topic, but I do agree that uh, it, it is not just a capacity problem. It, it is um, capacity is a huge part of it, but also um, you need um, you know the bioreactors to be suiting the cells and tailored to the cells. So it is a biological problem uh, as well. And I think we we will probably discuss this a bit later on when we talk about ph the pharmaceutical industry versus now. But um, essentially, we are trying to fit a, a round peg in a square hole kind of thing. And and so um, that leads to further inefficiencies because your cells are not happy. Their their metabolism is not working at the rate it should be because it's forced in an unnatural environment. Because uh, you know we are um, a, a lot of companies. Uh, the current state is that we are using the the gold standard, which is a stirred tag, which was built for you know uh, microorganisms and bacteria and algae and those sort of things, and originally came from brewing industry. So very different. And and you know we've been trying to sort of utilize these existing uh, technologies from other industries because it's there and it's easily, well, not so easily available, like Yossi said, but it's it still requires less work and less innovation, uh, you know, uh, but uh, 
and and a lot of startups have this sort of uh, ideology of you know why let's not try to reinvent the wheel kind of thing. But I think with 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 culture meat um, specifically, we might need to reinvent that wheel a little bit uh, in order to to solve both the biological challenges and the the scale scaling issues as well. Uh, the end product is so different. Uh, you know, we're not looking at little. Uh, monoclonal antibodies or, or pharmaceutical drugs. We're looking at three-dimensional tissue, like pieces of steak. So those really cannot be produced by traditional stir tanks. So, so there needs to be a big shift um, uh, in order to make those uh, ultimate uh, sort of foods that we, we, we all love. Now, well, I guess you guys are at the uh, forefront of that radical um, transformation. I mean, I've had the benefit of reading the article that's going to appear in the next issue, and three of you are actually interviewed in that article. Um, I mean, what are your thoughts on the potential integration of um, continuous uh, bioprocessing methods for scaling? Um, how might that impact productivity and uh, operational efficiency? And who wants to go tackle that one? Uh, maybe I can jump in here. Um, which, and as I'm saying this, Yossi, I'm so sorry, let me just cut you off. Uh, I'll just be real quick here. Um, so, what we by continuous? Uh, bioprocesses will define that as you for the audience. Uh, a batch process is you put all of your media and your cells and your ingredients in your vessel, and you basically that's it. You stop it. You grow up your cells to the point where they're ready to harvest, and then you know that's that's one batch. Whereas a continuous approach is constantly adding new ingredients, so fresh media. Um, for example, and about removing waste products from the bioreactor to keep your cells uh, kind of in their most productive phase for a longer period of time and ultimately to optimize your manufacturing process. Broadly put, there are pros and cons to continuous versus batch uh, in terms of ease of implementation. Um, again, whether it's going to be the right process for your cells, if you have really sensitive cells, that might not be the case. Um, but broadly, ultimately, this seems like a good direction of travel to go in. Uh, adjacent industries that we're talking a lot about, like biopharmaceuticals, have had a lot of success implementing continuous processes and decreasing their water use, their energy use, and still getting the same quality product out the other end. So there's a lot of promise for applying it in the cultivated meat and more broadly the fermentation space. I'm going to move on to bioreactor and system design now. Um, I'm going to discuss the key components of a, a system design for not just cultivated meat production, but fermentation as well, and how they contribute to the overall process. Um, Arpak, can you reveal any uh, innovative or novel approaches you've implemented or that you're aware of um, that can significantly improve design for novel foods? And I'm just bracketing you know, cultivated meat and fermentation into novel foods now. Yeah, I, I will speak specifically to, to Gaia and what, what we are doing uh, right now, or we have, we have been doing uh, the past uh, several months, is we have a sophisticated uh, computer modeling system where we can simulate scale-up uh, with various technology, technical configurations uh, and sizes of vessels. So we can take a customer's uh, pilot plant or benchtop uh, setup, and we can simulate how the system will behave, what the shear stress will be, the homogeneity in the system. Uh, at different scales so that we can guide uh, and design the actual vessel and the agitation system and everything uh, to suit whatever process uh, and, and, and product they're working with. 
that's one. And there's another one. Uh, we are working on a novel design that I cannot speak to in detail yet uh, around introducing bubbles into the system, right? Uh, to create uh, the right heterogeneity. And there's a scaling, or, or how, how should I say, there's a, a gradient uh, issue right now with the, with the current designs. As the bubbles go to a very large system, there will be different gradients and there will be issues with the cells. Uh, growth. So uh, we are working on a solution to this. Yossi, um, any innovative solutions out there that you're aware of, not necessarily from your company? Uh, yeah. So I would say that there's a lot of innovation around data capture and utilization. Um, really starting to think about how can we get all sensors to be online, so getting real-time measurements. Um, so that you don't have to open up the bioreactor and going from having maybe two data points a day to having 10,000 data points and then being able to leverage that for advanced modeling and, and much uh, better process control that uh, we believe could double yields just through having better data and then um, better implementation of, of process changes. On the bioreactor side, um, there's a lot. There's a number of companies, including us, who have decided that the stir tanks are not the future, that there is no way a stir tank is going to be the solution and that we have to have um, go back to other approaches that have been used or new approaches. Um, and then when it comes to whole cut products, that's really like you're, you're opening up uh, the aperture and there's really radical ways to grow meat so that it comes out like a steak. Uh, which is most definitely not going to be a stir tank just because you need to contain that structure. Um, and what we developed a bioreactor to, to have that whole cut. And we don't even call it a bioreactor. It just looks so different. Okay, Ash? Yeah, uh, I apologize. I can't reveal too much to patent, uh, pending patents and, and uh, press embargo, but... Um, uh, well, what we can reveal is that, yeah, we, we, similar to some of the other companies, we are working on a novel bioreactor that can, uh, produce, you know, 3d structured meat. So whole cuts, uh, we also have, um, like the bioreactor currently is a bit of a black box. So we have some novel sensors to, to know a bit more what's going on in them. We use AI driven systems to optimize the conditions, uh, that, that go, that, that are implemented in the bioreactor, uh, and also, um, uh, one of the uh, things we, we can talk about, I think was mentioned earlier, was continuous uh, systems. So, so we are implementing a continuous system where um, um, the way traditionally uh, continuous systems work is uh, you can yeah, feed the cells you know, continuously, uh, repeatedly, and, and uh, you can even uh, collect, you know, uh, so, so there's media or, or being fed to the cells continuously, but there's also uh, media coming out. The spent media is being removed. And so we are working on innovations in that side of things because we can recirculate media back into the tank uh, with a media recycling system. Uh, and then and, and that goes on to help us a lot with waste management and, and optimizing nutrient supply. So, uh, so you know, we're whilst we are not only pumping fresh media in, but we are taking out the spam media. It goes through a, a tangential flow filter and then we can, you know, put, put some of that back into to really save on those, uh, you know, nutrients and, and media being the most single, most expensive, uh, um, ingredient in the system. Uh, and then, yeah, we have certain, some other, um, uh, there's a lot of innovation we haven't talked much about, but in the areas of biomaterials or 
giving um, cells up uh, because mammalian cells traditionally they don't like to float around like bacteria or or you know algae they like a surface to attach to and, and grow on them and so uh, not just in our company but across the industry there's a lot of innovation in biomaterials their uh, cells are being given increasingly favorable environments and and uh, conditions for them to attach and, and multiply uh, which is more similar to to what they experience in nature and which which can also help uh, give that structure to the meat if it needed there are some companies uh, you know to try to get to market quickly with hybrid products that that use such edible biomaterials so so that those are some of the other innovations that sort of are being used to to either get to market quickly or get to that ultimate product in a more efficient manner. Mm-hmm. Um, before moving on to sizing, Jack, did you have anything to, to add to that? No, I, I think everyone else did a great job summarizing. There are there are a lot of problems to solve: materials, shape, size, uh, and as Yossi said, data, 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 and automation is the name of the game here. Um, coming on to size, actually, I mean, what factors should be considered when determining the optimal size of a, a bioreactor for for a cultivated meat producer out there? You'll see. So, so the first thing is how much cultivated meat do they want to produce? Um, chances are you don't want to have a factor of one bioreactor because you want to optimize for operational efficiency for the entire plant. And so you're not, it's not only a bioreactor optimization problem, it's a plant optimization problem. Um, and so, for example, you might want to have one bioreactor um, that is emptying out every day. And so you want to have some sort of multiple of seven or six. Um, for industrial scale plants, we believe that companies will likely want bioreactors that are in the hundreds of thousands, if not million plus liters, <laughs> um, just because they're, they really get economies of scale. Um, and when you have a larger plant operating at a higher scale, um, the contamination risk does even out on um, whether you have a, f- a handful of large bioreactors or many small bioreactors. Um, that does require technological innovation. And so a stir tank just won't work at that size. But if you if you have other ways of uh, growing the cells, then, then you could start to enter those sizes and save significantly on CapEx, but probably more importantly, save significantly on OpEx, on the operations costs. Just because every bioreactor that you have requires a whole suite of operations. And if you have fewer of them, um, it's just, you know, a lot fewer people and a, a lot fewer supported pieces of equipment. <laughs> um, Arpad, um, Yossi mentioned the contamination there. I mean, what steps should we be taking to minimize the risk of um, contamination during the process? And, and how best can we ensure the safety and quality of that final product? Yeah, I would say the most important factor is the right hygienic design for the entire system, right? We cannot go with a full pharma aseptic design everywhere because it will be cost prohibitive. Uh, what we need is really look at each piece of the process and define what kind of valves, pumps, you know, uh, components we are using, how we are attaching and integrating the entire system to eliminate or at least minimize the risk of contamination. And it is possible, and it's 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 a balancing game between again uh, minimizing contamination risk and keeping costs at a reasonable level. Right? You know, aseptic valves and, and components are extremely expensive compared to conventional valves. So it's really finding that sweet spot and what parts of the system can have a lower lower hygienic level and where we need to go fully. Um, are there any specific applications? 
or scenarios where smaller bioreactors might be preferred for an organization? Jack? Uh, again, this is going to be a common theme of a panel. It really depends on your circumstance. Um, so as a general note, if you are doing R&D, you want to use a small scale bioreactor initially. Um, it's faster, it's more economical, and it allows you to quickly test things in the lab. Um, ultimately, it comes down to, like Yossi said, how much do you, of your product do you want to make? Where do you want to make it? And how quickly do you want to make it? Um, in general, it's easier to figure out how to optimize a smaller bioreactor than a larger bioreactor. So say if a firm needed a very short time to bring a product to market, or if for some reason you want it to operate across a decentralized production model, as opposed to several large, larger centralized production facilities, a smaller bioreactor might actually suit your needs. Um, like most things in life, uh, it comes down to cost, time, and quality. You get to pick two, not three. Yeah, just to um, add to that, actually, the way we envision this this uh, field uh, in evolving over time is, uh, you know, at first, uh, at least us as a company and most companies are targeting the biggest players, you know, uh, the, the biggest scales, one, because of economies of scale, like Yossi mentioned, uh, but also, you know, to have the biggest impact uh, possible. But obviously, as time goes on, we will be able to make and achieve those same costs and, and, and the same kind of products at smaller scales. Um, um, and, and as time goes on, when we achieve those costs at smaller scales, it will open up a lot more possibilities. So you could have, like with our business model, uh, you know, you could have in, in five, 10 years from now, uh, restaurants that are making their own sort of tailored cultured meat. You know, maybe they don't do, you know, this, your standard uh, uh, um uh, ham they do an Iberico jamon or or you know instead of um, you know having a mass-produced uh, Angus beef you could have that Wagyu beef that's made at a smaller scale that's made um, with more tailored branded meat for for uh, a high-end restaurant or restaurant chain or things like that so so we could see it uh, yeah getting smaller and more decentralized with with the, you know not just big meat companies but more uh, you know smaller restaurants and restaurant chains making their own uh, distinct products and then as time goes on further in the very long term we could even see the bioreactive becoming extremely small and personalized like a bit like a coffee machine you know you have your coffee pods and, and you make your little mocha and so we see that being the ultimate future where uh, people might be able to you know use bioreactors in their homes uh, for personalized nutrition and 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 you know maybe they need a certain uh uh, you, you know, uh, iron content or vitamin C content, they can get that with, with their machine, with their, you know, part of cell lines and so on. So um, the industry has really just scratched the surface and we're just starting to see uh, the possibilities of what can be achieved with uh, bioreactors. Yeah, well, obviously it's going to take a lot of investment and probably quite a long time as well. Arpad, how do you see the involvement of multinational food companies, you know, the big boys in the industry? Um, impacting the development and growth of uh, cultivated meat industry. Are there examples, for instance, that you can share that highlight successful partnerships between big meat and, and the, some of the cultivated meat startups out there? Yeah, that's a great question, Nick. Um, I think their involvement will be crucial and it's going to be impactful. GFI released their state of the industry report in April, you know, along the three segments as they see it in, of alternative proteins. And, and one of the I would say a key point in the report was 
the involvement of multinationals uh, at different levels, right? A lot of them are investing. They have their capital arm was investing in startup companies. They are also doing a lot of partnering, right? On the distribution sales side, perhaps also on R&D. Uh, examples would be JBS bought uh, bio, the Biotech Foods, a uh, Spanish company, right? Uh, where they are planning now to build a R&D center or uncultivated meat in, in Brazil. Another example would be obviously Nestle partnering with Believer Meats, uh, and then more recently with uh, ADM. And then I think Cargill has invested in something uh, like nine cultivated meat startups. So they are very active. A lot of these multinationals are active. And I think as the industry matures, they're going to start playing a much bigger role. You know, they have the operational expertise, they have the distribution network, the sales network. They understand how meat production is done, right? They already have oftentimes existing facilities that could be retrofitted or uh, used perhaps uh, for production. So I expect uh, the industry to consolidate and shift. And I think a lot of the big players, CPG and meat companies uh, will play a key role. Jack, Yossi, um, how do you perceive that level of interest um, from the big boys in the in the food market, do you think their interest is mainly driven by market potential or sustainability concerns or something else entirely, perhaps? Jack? Sure. Um, probably a bit, uh, keeping up my seam of saying everything, it's a bit of all three. So <laughs> obviously there is, there is the clear market potential. Like if cultivated meat goes in a direction we all want it to, there is one of the biggest markets on planet Earth to, you know, potentially get upside from. Um, more broadly though, you know, but putting on more of a humanitarian hat, as opposed to just, you know, the, the bottom line, the reason we're seeing the demand for this is because consumers are voting with their feet. There is a growing, uh, amount of people, not just in the U S the UK and Europe, but around the world who want more sustainable solutions, more ethical solutions in some case to get their food. Um. Cargill, JBS, uh, Tyson, at the end of the day, these are firms that specialize in providing food and protein. Um, if they want to keep serving their customer base, they need to do what the customers want. And if customers want sustainability and ethical food, that's the direction we're going to go in. You'll see. I think they covered it. Sorry, I didn't hear that. <laughs> oh, no, I, I think uh, Jack and Arafat did a great job. Yeah, did cover, yeah, he did cover that one very well. Um, I mean, what do you think there's any potential um, risks or concerns um, about the influence that these companies might have on this, you know, nascent industry, Yossi? Uh, there's always things to, to be aware of. Just um, startups and large corporations have many aligned incentives, and there's also... Uh, they have different incentives, and so I, I do think that uh, startups have to be aware of where the incentives are aligned and where there's opportunity for really close partnership and, and where independence is needed. Mm -hmm. I mean, on the flip side, obviously, there's some areas in particular um, of the cultivated meat value chain where these big companies could actually have a positive impact um, and add some you know, real value. Um, would you agree with that, Arpad? Yes, definitely. Uh, again, uh, just to helping the industry grow and take off while once we get to that point of, let's say, market development, uh, they will play a huge part. Uh -huh. 
And I just, oh, just looking at plant-based milk, I think a, a good um, corollary is in the U.S. market, um, Oatly was the first company to really enter and creating oat-based milk um, and got great market share. And then um, Hood entered a, a massive milk company. Um, and just because they had such great distribution channels and such great infrastructure, they were able to create a product that if if not quickly became number two, became number one. And so there is a real opportunity for these large companies to come in to, to benefit from their relationships with grocers, to benefit with their uh, relationships with upstream providers, and to um, just be able to really accelerate market demand and market growth. Uh-huh. That's a great example, you see. Yeah. I see a similar trend playing out in the long run here, too. Mm-hmm. And Yash, did you have anything to add to that before we come on to stirred tanks? I know you obviously mentioned those earlier before we come on to new bioreactor designs. Uh, yeah, sure. Um, I think, like, based on our business model, we our, our entire business model completely revolves around, you know, empowering existing food producers and helping them with an equitable transition with, uh, into a new sustainable food system. And so, yeah, we've interacted with many um, such players. And uh, I think, um, you know, the ways we can benefit are, are plentiful. For example, customers trust these brands that are already existing. They've always eaten their meats. Uh, and so there's that trust. And so if you get a new strange, you know, cultured meat product, uh, but it's from a familiar, familiar company, from the brand you trust, you're more likely to, to adopt it. Uh, there's also uh, things like, for example, I'm a vegan. I've been vegan for years and years and vegetarian for over 20 years. So I have no idea how meat tastes like. And so um, companies, by working with them, uh, we can actually, it helps a lot on the downstream side of getting that exact taste and, 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 and you know, texture and mouthfeel. And, and um, there's a lot of synergies between companies like us and them, whereas we are, you know, specialized in the bioreactors and things like that. They can bring in their expertise in terms of, you know, how do we flavor these foods? Uh, we've had chats with companies like Chico Dan on this, where you know they're like leading when it comes to flavoring, and they've opened a center in Switzerland to work with younger startups like us. Um, and, and so yeah, things like flavoring, uh, preservatives, uh, packaging. There's there's so many more aspects to this that you know we don't necessarily have those decades of decades of uh, experience that these existing companies do have, which which we can leverage. Uh, but yeah, there's always concerns uh, a lot with these things. Uh, most of these companies, uh, you know, they have uh, revenues over a billion dollars per year. So they've, they see more money in a single day than companies like us have seen in our entire lifetimes. So we have to be very careful when it comes to things like IP and, and sharing those technology things because uh, it, it really like we're like a little drop in the water for them. And, and they could easily, once they figure out that missing piece of the puzzle from us, they could, it, not, nothing stops them from, you know, recreating themselves with their own team that they could spend millions on without any, thin, without a sweat, basically. So, so we have to be very careful um, uh, and, and, and navigate these relationships uh, very cautiously, but optimistically. Uh-huh. Would you agree with that, Yossi? Uh, oh, we're definitely cautious. <laughs> startups are very small, but startups are also very nimble and are able to lean into innovation and lean into risk in a way that um, legacy providers often are more wary of um yeah. I, I think just like we're talking about cutting edge frontier technology here and 
unfortunately, the legacy providers have not innovated quickly enough uh, to service this industry. So there's a real opportunity uh, for, for new folks with new thinking to come in and to really question the status quo and come up with something that's not 10% better, but that's 10 times better. Uh -huh. So how do you predict that this is all going to evolve then? I mean, just say, yeah, I mean, we're, we're still quite a few years yet from customers in the USA, for instance, buying this these products on their shelves. I mean, how do you think, say, in 15, 20 years' time, the market will look? You know, who will be the big players? Yeah. Um, I think it will be some of the leading cultivating companies today or some of the new entrants in cultivating meat space. Um, and there'll probably be companies that none of us have, have heard of, as well as some of the big meat companies that either have started their own units or have acquired or partnered with the leading cultivating meat companies. In 15 years, cultivated meat will not be the only meat, but I do believe that it could be have double-digit penetration globally, um, which would be a, a really tremendous impact and would start to shift things like global warming. Like in our office, we have a sign that says, "Let's change the world," and when we talk about that, we're like, it's not just figurative; but it's literal. Like. If cultivating meat succeeds and you go up to space and you look down at the planet, the planet will look different. There will be reforestation. Um, and so I think that that can happen in the next 15 years. Won't be a full transition because there's so much infrastructure to build out, uh, but, but could be meaningful. Yeah. Jack, presumably you've got the same sort of optimistic view of how this could like plan out. said it better if I tried. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and our pad? Yeah, I would agree. I would agree. It will be a, a blend of uh, companies, uh, both existing startups we know now, uh, newcomers, uh, and then the large uh, CPG and meat companies as, as the major players. So I think the larger companies, just to come back to that topic, I think they're, I mean, they have their traditional business. They're making a lot of money. Uh, they're keeping a close eye on the industry development, right? But they're very patient. They don't need to rush. They, they abide their time. They will see who are the winners, who are the losers. And they will step in and make acquisitions uh, and, and make those decisions when the time is right. So it's not. Yeah. I mean, it's not just um, uh, the technical challenge. There's, 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 there's lots of other challenges as well. Consumer acceptance, regulatory, we seem to be, um, you know, reaching those milestones now, many more to come. But um, yeah, the consumers uh, getting them on board and also the media play a big role in this. I'm not sure if any of you saw that UC Davis um, uh, research recently and it got tremendous coverage globally about the sustainability of uh, cultivated meat products versus conventional farming um, the data was completely skewed I don't know if you've um, seen anything about that um, Yossi uh, I, I haven't dug into it but it does assume, make a number of assumptions about how factories will be run and processes um, and just like one assumption coming back to bioreactors is, do you need a impeller that requires tremendous amounts of electricity or can you have um, movements from something that is very low energy? Uh -huh. And so there's just, with bioprocesses, you all have discussed, is very complex. And so it's not a, there's not one silver bullet or one way to dramatically reduce the sustainability footprint, um, but there's real creative, innovative thinking going on across these elements. Um, and that there is opportunity to do everything from switching bioreactor design to finding media components that are much, much more sustainable. And so uh, I, any 
study that looks at the industry as a point of time, I think missing the point that we're, we're moving at light speed um, and that these problems are just opportunities waiting to be tackled. I certainly know Elliot Schwartz at uh, the Good Food Institute penned a very, very good response to them um, about that report. I mean, we're going to talk about the sustainability um, in bioreactor design now, continuing that theme. I mean, it's not only important that we're developing more sustainable products, but we do it in the most sustainable way possible. Um, so, so what are some of, some of the key factors to consider when assessing um, the sustainability of bioreactor designs for the cultivated meat or fermentation-derived proteins? Um, Yash, do you want to come in on that one? Yeah, sure. I think uh, with sustainability, um, um, I mean, if you go full technically, you know, there's a number of uh, pretty well-known sort of performance uh, indicators, things like, you know, um, uh, land usage or water consumption, uh, things like uh, energy required per kilogram, carbon footprint, etc. They all play a very important role uh, for, for this. And I think um, going back to actually your previous question uh, about the Davis paper, I think it's so flawed in in a lot of its assumptions and using completely different cell lines and stuff that a lot of these parameters get, um, you know, get, get a lot of these, the, the values we get for a lot of these parameters are completely skewed if you use it, use, you know, assumptions and, and data from 10 years ago to try and model these things. So, so we are actually, uh, this is actually core to our company. And so uh, our, our uh, all our buyers to designing and all our work is driven by a techno-economical analysis model, as well as uh, sustainability uh, system, you know, using systems like Gabby to to really uh, monitor these things. And um, so, yeah, I think uh, uh, when it comes to this, there's so many decisions that you can make regarding your, your bioreactor, things like uh, media uh, recycling systems, whether to implement it or not, and how do we implement it in in a proper way, things like also whether to use single use versus um uh, sort of reusable or stainless steel equipment. There's a lot of questions uh, that that can play a big role in this. And then we honestly, as an industry, don't have all the answers for, for those, but it is uh, true. And then I think uh, from, um, so my co-founder, Clarice, she did her master's on exactly this topic at the University of Cambridge, and it's going to be published quite soon, is that um, if we, um, you know, hit certain uh, key performance indicators in terms of uh, the um, cell growth rate and, and metabolic rate, et cetera, it is definitely uh, a, a very realistic um, sort of um, assumption to make that we can hit 90% less uh, land, water, uh, and energy requirements, as well as, uh, you know, uh, a 90% lower carbon footprint are, are very much achievable. But uh, like Yossi previously said, uh, it is not one magic solution or, or bag of beans. It has to come from improving our cell lines, from improving our bioreactors, from improving our uh, general sort of bioprocess workflow, having better media that gets set, knowing what cells need and, and feeding them exactly what they need, you know, not trying to use standardized products uh, necessarily for everything and so on. So it's going to be an incremental and slow uh, progress towards those 90% uh, reduction goals. Mm -hmm. Um, I can see we've got lots of questions coming in here. Um, so I'm just going to fire away a few of these to you uh, guys now. Um, Analor Bergman asks, understanding that there is a significant gap in available production capacity and future needed capacity, what investments does each of you see necessary in five to 10 years in the bioreactors industry? Who wants to tackle that one? Jack, you're, you're nodding away. Oh, sure. Um, I have a hunch I'm going to say something that everyone here is thinking. Um, 
not only do we need to keep investing in better technological R&D, um, we're probably going to need to continue to invest in shareable or like centralized uh, development and manufacturing centers um, to meet some of this demand. We need the right machines and then we need a lot of them. This is something that venture capital investment has been funding for the past few years in the alternative protein space. But like Yossi said earlier, when you look at the scale that is required to build one factory, let alone tens or hundreds around the world, suddenly this doesn't look like a venture capital financing problem anymore. This looks like a government subsidization, project financing, and that requires getting investment from new sources of capital into the space, which ultimately just requires making good progress, educating everyone who's involved, and heck, a lot of hard work and graft to make it happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just I mean, something that has such yeah. a... Sorry, go on, you'll see. Uh, just to add to what Jack said, um, one of the big opportunities is to bring it in debt financing, which requires significant de-risking. And so a first-of-a-kind facility uh, might be very high risk, even if they're using traditional bioreactors and traditional equipment. Uh, but if you could show that that first-of-a-kind facility operates uh, remarkably well, it could be uh, much easier to get much cheaper capital for that second, third, fifth, twentieth facility. Um, and so I do believe that the the finance stack will shift over time as we continue to de-risk the technology from the cells to the bioreactors. Certainly. Um, I've got a Vanessa, a Vanessa Stolten here has asked, Arpad touched upon the points of oxygen distribution in the tank. What are the main issues and needs of innovation um, in specific here? Yeah. yeah, I would have to defer to our technology team here as I'm not a bioprocess engineer. Uh, what it is, so maybe some of the guys on the call here can answer the question better than I can. Uh, as I understand it is... In larger vessels, uh, when you introduce the bubbles uh, from, from the beginning, it creates different gradients. So there will be a different growing environment at different parts of the reactor. So this has to be what we are working on is overcoming this with, with a novel solution uh, to have uniform, so to have no gradients, but have a uniform distribution of bubbles because bubbles are critical also to the behavior and growth of cells. Mm-hmm. Um, Maximiliano Marrera um, has asked, what about the challenge of keeping the right temperature of huge bioreactors and the energy required for that purpose? It's a good question. I'm just going to tackle that one. Uh, I can oh, take that. I can. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, no. Well, Yash, it's all you. No, it's all yours, Jack. <laughs> <laughs> go on, Jack first and then Yash. Oh, yeah. Um, so, temperature regulation, one of the many challenges in a bioprocess. Uh, if you have cells at different temperatures, they behave differently. So, one of the challenges with a very large stirred tank fire reactor like we've been hitting on earlier is you generally have some sort of uh, heating element that needs to keep this giant massive liquid warm and that takes a lot of energy. Uh, if you've ever tried to microwave something in a big Tupperware versus a small Tupperware, you understand this intuitively. Um, there are a lot of innovative designs out there which I think we're venturing into that gray area where everyone on the call is going to defer to their IP or technical team, so might not be able to go into it. But it's coming up with ways using engineering and mechanics to move liquid and temperature gradients around in a 
using natural forces that are easily available in the world? That sounds incredibly vague, and I'll pass it over to Yash, because maybe he has a much more elegant answer than I do. No, thank you. I know, I'm not sure. Um, uh, so I think, um, so there's two things about it. So one is, um, I think if you have a well-mixed system, uh, then in general, the temperature should be uniform, similar to what Art was talking about for the previous question. So as long as you can get that well-mixed profile, and there's a lot of tools to do it, like we employ a lot of computational modeling. Uh, we have a digital twin that, you know, we can predict the temperature before we anything physical even exists. So uh, modeling helps us a lot with, you know, looking at the fluid flow and, and fluid dynamics and the transport processes or energy transfer processes to really optimize those things. So, so that's one tool that's really helped us uh, get the energy requirements right for that and the desired right for that. So that's uh, one thing. But the other thing is, I think uh, for us, this hasn't been a really big pressing concern, unlike oxygen, for example, oxygen distribution. Uh, Temperatures, I think, one of the few things we can borrow and learn from other industries like brewing and fermentation and and uh, you know uh, uh, the pharma industry because they have managed to do this with twenty thousand liter reactors successfully. So I think this is an area where we can borrow a bit and then use tools like computational modeling to really uh, tailor it and perfect it for our applications. Okay, I had a really good question here, and I've lost it now. Um, ba -ba 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 -ba. Oh, here we go. Yeah, Max uh, Miliano again, I think. Will diseases associated to cell reproduction be a challenge when cultivating meat? E.g., can carcinogenic cells be produced or uh, DNA changing challenges? I'm not sure who can answer that, but this is a good question. <laughs> See, so, yep. yeah, I can take that uh, because we, we, there's something we're working on. Um uh, Basically, um, if you have a, a robust reproducible cell line, um, you know, from the very beginning, uh, then you can sort of be quite confident that, you know, there won't be any issues uh, with the cells, DNA changing, et cetera. Um, and, and so I think most companies, including us, as part of our regulatory approval process, are doing a lot of robustness and reproducibility testing, making sure that the cells are stable and, and behave the same way you know, after months and months and months of being grown and, and you know, put through a lot of different conditions, um, uh, you know, so so this is something, it is a concern, but if you get your cell line right from the beginning and you show that they stay the same and, and they're stable, then this won't be an issue. Uh, bioreactors are also being designed so, so they run without antibiotics and it's all being kept in like a, I would say like a surgically clean environment so we can be uh, quite confident that uh, there's no sort of contaminations. And then, like Abed said, you know, there's effort to minimize the contamination. So I think, uh, yeah, like uh, uh, if you, if, if culture new products are being approved by the regulatory bodies, then we can be quite confident that this diligence has been carried out, uh, at least for, for some of the main uh, big, big countries like, like USA. Okay. Um, we're quickly running out of time. I have one more question here from Murali. This is a good one. The control of the bioreactor, in my opinion, plays a significant role on the quality and quantity of the produced biomass. Are there any novel control algorithms or methods that are more superior to the ones that, that can find in literature, e.g. model predictive control? Um, yeah, that's another good question. I thought we'd just try and answer it quickly. Um, Jack? Yeah, I'll, I'll throw a hat into the ring here. Uh, yes. That we, we think there are many better ways to develop process control systems. Uh, one of 
to, to use a buzzword from uh, the technical space, uh, an adaptive process control system is an intelligent machine that can gather data in real time, make it interpret that data into a decision and then feed that back into the process control. Uh, so to use a very simple example, say you're growing cells in a bioreactor and you've programmed in a model that tells you when you need to add in more media. If you have an adaptive process control, you're not reliant on a model which has parameters and assumptions that are made before the machine actually starts running. You actually can look inside the machine, metaphorically, look inside the machine, figure out what's actually happening in real time, and then feed that back into your control system. And these types of process control systems are coming about, uh, that come about in other totally unrelated industries to bioreactors and bioproduction. They are starting to come into the fore in the more biopharmaceutical aspects of things. And ultimately, we think they'll play a very strong role in cultivated meat and alternative protein optimization. Right. Um, we've almost run out of time. I just want to get 20 seconds each from you on your final thoughts about today's discussion. Um, so Yossi, I'm going to come to you first. I believe we're on the precipice of tremendous change and that better bioprocess um, is a key piece of the puzzle. And so it's extremely exciting to be on panel with so many people who are doing so much cutting edge work uh, to bring about a better future. Yash? Uh, yeah, like uh, it was a pleasure speaking to you all. And I think it was a very stimulating conversation that we have come a long way from, you know, five, 10 years ago, uh, but that's, yeah, that's a uh, much more work to do. So uh, I wish everyone all the best and then look forward to keeping up with the, um, the industry. Arpad? Yeah, thank you, Nick, for the opportunity uh, to talk uh, with all of you guys. I really enjoyed our talks. Uh, I, I love this industry. I come from different industries uh, and I specifically joined this business because uh, I believe in the mission of what each and every one of us is doing. And it's great to be part of it and I can't wait to tell my children and my gran grandchildren about it so it's, it's very exciting certainly is Jack final final words to you yeah I'll echo what everyone else said like ultimately this is a team sport there's no magic bullet it's not going to be a winner take all there are a lot of really smart people on planet earth who are mission driven trying to make this change happen I'm really glad to be a part of it and it has been lovely speaking with you all Brilliant, brilliant. Thank you very much. Okay, that is definitely all we have time for today. We've run over slightly, but um, never mind, we'll pay the bill. Um, we hope you have enjoyed today's discussion. Uh, you can join us next month, similar topic, on 26th of July um, for our next uh, webinar called The Road to Scalability, Scale-Up Economics for Cultured Meats. Um, if you didn't get a chance to ask your question, you can contact the speakers today uh, via this platform or just hook up with them on LinkedIn. I'm sure they'll accept your request. And finally, don't forget our magazine, Protein Production Technology International. In the July-August 2023 edition, which comes out on the 26th of July, there is a feature on today's topic. And I think I'm right in saying that Jack, Yossi, and Arpad all feature within that article. And I will be getting in touch with Yash this afternoon to see if he wants to be in it as well. So yeah, that publishes on the 26th of July. It's, uh, it's, free, of, uh, it's free of charge to subscribe. Um, so to receive the next issue, just, um, just go via our our website at thefutureofproteinproduction.com and click on publication. Um, so thank you all for joining us. Thank you, Yossi, uh, Yash, Jack, and Arpad. Uh, it was a pleasure speaking with you. 
Um, thank you, everyone else, for joining us and for all of your questions. Uh, we'll be back next month. Take care. Thank you for listening to the Future of Protein Production Podcast. We hope you gained valuable insights and knowledge about the innovative technologies and practices that are transforming the way we produce protein. Don't forget to subscribe to Protein Production Technology International, our multimedia magazine, and follow us on social media to stay up to date with the latest news and updates. Stay tuned for more exciting episodes.